Hi, everyone. I'm Nathan, the host of this podcast. And tonight, I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Andrew Field. Dr. Andrew Field is a scholar of Chinese history and culture. He has taught Chinese history for the University of Puget Sound, University of New South Wales, and New York University, and has also directed study abroad programs for Dartmouth College, CIEE, and Boston University. He is currently the Associate Professor of Chinese History at Duke Quinshan University. Additionally, Dr. Field is the author of multiple books, the host of multiple walks, and has even produced his own documentary. Today's segment will mainly focus on discussing the city of Shanghai, one of China's metropoles. Good evening, Dr. Field. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, Nathan. Um, I'm not actually in Shanghai. You can see the backdrop um, of my um, image here is of Duke Quinshan University, where I teach in the adjacent city, much smaller city of Quinshan. Looks like a beautiful campus. Yeah. So just to begin with the question we typically ask all our guests, if you could have a dinner for two with any historical figure, who would you choose? What would you talk about and why? Yeah, I mean, it, this is a question that I actually spent some time thinking about. Um, and it's an interesting question because there's a number of different ways to look at it. You know, do you go back in time? I think as a historian, you know, I, speaking for historians, we all would love to go back in time to different time periods to talk to people. And it's something that we actually kind of do in our research Although that person doesn't really, you know, it's not so much a two-way dialogue, but it is in some way. We are convening with these people, communing with them um, through the text and through visual materials and so on. But um, the other way to look at it would be, does that person's ghost somehow come to the present day and talk to me? And... Both of, both of those way, uh, ways of looking at it introduce a paradox. So let's just take an example, because I'm, I'm a China historian. So, of course, as a modern China historian, one of the people that we're most fascinated with is Mao. I mean, who, any historian, who, who wouldn't want to go back to, uh, to meet that guy and find out what was it in him that caused him to become such a major world historical figure and lead this revolution and and so on. And so then if I were going back in time, would I want to go back to his early years when he was the young revolutionary, the freedom fighter, you know, the young handsome guy with the gleam in his eyes and this fiery look and and sit with him um, for for dinner, that young guy, or would it be the you know, the older guy, the, the post-revolution Mao, the great leader, the helmsman. So these are the kind of questions that, that I would ask myself. Or if he were to come here to my time and then supposedly could see what was going on in China today, what would he think of, of China today? Or if I could talk to him in his time, what would I tell him about the future of China, Right. And would that introduce a paradox whereby history was irrevo irrevocably changed, 
right? So all the so it's an interesting question, but I'm going to pick Mao because he's kind of the obvious answer, um, and and uh, but there are so many others that 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 I could talk about. Um, so let's just leave it at that. So speaking with Mao and your knowledge on him, what do you think if he were to come to our time period? What would he be his thoughts or perception of our world today? I think he would find it just jaw-dropping how dramatically China has transformed in since the time of his his life. So he died in 1976, and um, and that's uh, you know almost. Yeah, almost 50 years, 45, more than 45 years ago, China has changed so much since that time. I mean, I've personally witnessed a lot of the changes because I first came here in the 1980s, and it really was a different place uh, back then. So I think he would be just dumbstruck, but also in some ways, there would probably be a certain pride to you know, the economic development of the country, how sophisticated, but also probably, you know, a lot of uh, reservation about some of the inequities in Chinese society, um, the, uh, the gap between poverty and wealth, and so forth, which, of course, the government is still very concerned about. Um, but this was something that I think Mao, above all else, really... <laughs> had as one of his high priorities. Um, so it, it would be a fascinating experience if we, if his, it'd be a scary experience, but it would be a fascinating experience if, if um, his ghost came to life and, and he were able to speak to us again. Um, anyhow, so. Well, as you said, China has changed a lot over the last few years and Shanghai is at the epicenter of that being one of the biggest economic hubs. Within that economic hub, there's some great tourist areas, and one of them is the Bund, but that comes from a history of colonialism. Can you elaborate a bit on what Shanghai was like during that time? Yeah, so I think by that time, we're talking about the time that the buildings on the Bund um, that we know of now were being built. So that would mainly be in the 1920s and 30s. And that's really the area that I've spent a lot of my um, research focusing on. It's such a fascinating time period, not just for China, but for world history, the period between the two great world wars of the 20th century. Um, and for China, it was a time of um, also great change, especially in the big cities like Shanghai. Um, but it was also a time of great calamity. It's hard to imagine how, um, how difficult it was to, to live in China at that time. Um, there were constant wars. You know, this was the warlord era. Um, there was a nationalist revolution in the 1920s, which was also quite violent, especially in Shanghai. Um, there was rampant disease. I mean, we're, we're now in the midst of a pandemic, but back then pandemics were rife. There were cholera pandemics. There, there was typhus. There were so many diseases and people really didn't have much 
ability, especially uh, poor people, to um, to stop them, um, to to get treated and so forth. Uh, tuberculosis, um, dysentery. I mean, it was these were tough times, and so in Shanghai, you saw both extremes. You saw you saw the wealth. Uh, the greatest concentration of wealth in China, both amongst the Chinese and amongst the foreigners, um, what we might call the colonists, the colonials, the British, the Americans, they ran their trading firms, they, they ran insurance companies and banks, many of which are still operating today. Um, and that was what the Bund symbolized. So getting back to the Bund, the Bund was a symbol of the might and wealth of these colonial peoples, particularly the British Empire, um, which was kind of at the heart of the Bund. Uh, this was the international settlement, which was originally the British settlement. It really started on the Bund back in the 1800s. So all the major trading firms were there, the big banks, the insurance companies, the Hong Kong Shanghai Bank, with its two imposing lions guarding the bank. Um, all of this was symbolic of the might and the authority and the power and the civilization of, of um, the British, of European civilization, um, suggesting a kind of dominance at that time over Asia, um, over this part of the world. And so, of course, now, nowadays, or certainly ever since the revolution of 1949, the Bund has taken on multiple meanings. And I remember when I first came to Shanghai in the 80s, it was also a very popular tourist place, but people would say things like, oh, this also represents the evil imperialism, right? Because I think in Chinese society, that's how you're taught. You, you know, I think it's a rather simplistic way of seeing history, um, but it's not wrong. It's not, it's certainly not wrong. Um, this was a, you know, part of a colonial network, a colonial empire, uh, part of the British Empire. The French were also uh, involved. They had their own concession. The Americans were involved. Other powers were involved. Of course, later the Japanese. Um, so yeah, it had. It's a. It's fraught with multiple meanings. Um, I can see why for Chinese people, it's a very symbolic space. Um, it's, I think, you know, the other thing about the Bund today is that because it's been renovated and there was a renaissance on the Bund um, starting around 20 years ago and kind of culminating, you know, with the World Expo 10 years ago uh, when Shanghai held the World Expo, the Bund became this showpiece for the city. So they, they renovated all the buildings. Um, they, they put fancy restaurants and bars and galleries and other places, nightclubs in these buildings. And so it became kind of a, a high-class zone, but also a, a tourist site. Um, they widened the boulevards and... But the other side of the Bund is that when you're on the Bund, you're looking out at Pudong, right across from the river, and you're seeing these brand new buildings 
and you're seeing the vision of Shanghai for the 21st century, which you could say is the vision of China for the 21st century. So there's also that experience. So, so I think it's, that's why the Bund is so fascinating. You have multiple meanings, multiple symbolisms that are going on all at once, and it's this amazing panorama and, and no matter what your social or economic background, you can at least see that panorama, right? You can witness it. Um, so I think that's what makes the Bun such a spectacular place today. Yeah, as you said, it might very well be a blank and blanket statement to call all colonialism bad, but there were undeniable negative effects, oppression that occurred. But I guess my broader question is, should remnants of colonialism that could be beautiful, such as the Bund, be embraced, or should they be destroyed because of the history behind them? And I think that that's a, an interesting question, and it's also one that you know, perhaps people would have been asking during the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s, when a lot of monuments and, and symbols of foreign imperialism were physically destroyed. Um, but don't forget that the Cultural Revolution was also about destroying remnants of the old feudal culture in China. So then it, it, it begs the question, well, what about the Forbidden City? That's, that is the grand edifice of Chinese feudalism, of this imperial system that lasted in China for centuries that supposedly kept China backwards, at least in in certain thinking, in you know, certain strains of Western thinking that I think are a little antiquated now, and also in Chinese thinking, especially the thought of the great revolutionaries Sun Yat-sen and Mao. Um, and so, why do we keep those buildings, right? Why, you know? So, I think I think the answer is that I think people are inherently attracted to beauty, especially at that scale. And there's something about that that's transcendental. So when these grand edifices are built, even by decaying, dying empires, right? So we have the Forbidden City, which is now a monument to a, a lost empire, um, the Empire of the Qing. Um, we, have the, we have the Bund, which is a monument to another lost empire, the British Empire which really disintegrated in the 20th century. Um, and so I think that people recognize that those remnants and those traces of human civilization and of the stages that came before are extremely important that they shouldn't be destroyed, that they should stand as monuments to the great achievements of, of the past, but also the follies, the great flaws the hubris of civilizations to think that they could, they could persist. I mean, going back to the ancient Egyptians and, and the, the pyramids and the Aztecs and so forth, we, we love these monuments because they're so resonant of, of the human story. And without them, I think we would be lost as human beings. Well, the importance of preserving history, I'm always preaching on the pad podcast of using oral history in addition to reading textbooks, but you make a great point that these monuments, that the architecture that is around us 
serves as a constant reminder of the history of where we're living every day. So moving on chronologically a bit further into Shanghai's history, into World War II, a less known about event is that Shanghai actually took in a plethora of Jewish refugees during World War II. There's even a museum about that. And can you tell us a little bit more about this time and this act? Yes, I can. Um, So during World War II, uh, you know, starting in 1939, um, there was a flood of Jewish refugees from Europe, uh, escaping the Nazis, escaping ultimately the, you know, uh, the concentration camps and the death chambers, everything we know about what happened in World War II. Um, and they, they were trying to find a safe haven. And it became known that Shanghai offered one. Um, and over, um, this was a very specific stream of Jewish refugees who originally came on an ocean voyage Um to, to Shanghai. Um, ultimately, they started coming uh, over land, but originally it was an ocean voyage. So they would arrive on the Bund, on the Huangpu River, and then they would find refuge. Um, they were helped by the Jewish community that was already entrenched in Shanghai, which was actually a very wealthy and very powerful community. So on the Bund, you had Sir Victor Sassoon and his Cathay Hotel, which is now the famous Peace Hotel. And he also had a building a little bit up Suzhou River from the Bund called the Embankment Building. It's another very famous building in Shanghai history. Uh, so he owned these two buildings, and he, for a while he was using the Embankment Building to, um, to house some of these refugees and other wealthy Jewish uh, tycoons, you could call them, also helped to, um, you know, to help to support this flood of Jewish refugees, which eventually reached around 20,000. And now this is in addition to other Jewish refugees and exiles and um, adventurers who also came here earlier. Um, But, um, but very specifically, this was the, the flood of refugees starting in 1939 that came to Shanghai, um, and they were uh, they, they found housing. They were able to make a living. They were even able to, um, you know, run their own synagogues or, or participate in synagogues, schools, uh, newspapers, cafes, restaurants. You name it. They played a huge part in the cultural life of the city uh, during that time period. And eventually, um, these refugees the, uh, were um, concentrated in an area in Hongko, which is north of the Bund, uh, the Hongko district. Um, and they were put in, you know, what we what we now call the Shanghai ghetto. Uh, so they were ghettoized. They were put in a very specific community within, you know, maybe one or two square miles. Um, a few square kilometers, and uh, they were they were forced to live there. They had they had to have entry passes and so forth to get in and out. 
Um, they were put in um, in housing with dozens of other people. So you have, you know, we have photographs of, you know, dozens of people maybe living in one house or one, you know, several people living in one room. The interesting thing is that in all these photographs that I've seen, they were always wearing really elegant clothing, kind of reflecting their their genteel background, their bourgeois background, uh, because they came from the great cities of Europe. And these were, these were people with um, good educations. They were doctors. They were, they were musicians. They, they were cultured people who were forced into exile. Um, and so it's interesting that they maintained a lot of their ways, even at the height of the ghetto phase and when it wasn't clear what would happen to them. Um, but they survived the experience. Um, and, you know, you have to understand that this was, it was the Japanese at the time who had occupied the city who, who put them in the ghetto. That was their policy. Um, but also they didn't, they, they didn't do what the Germans had done in Europe and what they were even maybe suggesting that the Japanese do in Shanghai. Um, so I, I think the Chinese want to say that it's our story or the Shanghainese. We saved the Jews. The, the Japanese played a role, of course, but that's a complicated story because they were the occupiers. They were the, they were the, um, the bad guys, the villains in this story. So it's hard to give them credit. Um, but I think that as a historian, you have to see the different dimensions to what happened. But the long and short of it is that, you know, nearly 20,000, you know, if you, some of them did die of illness, of mal malnutrition, but most of them survived. And after the war ended, most of them were, um, you know, they, they eventually almost all left Shanghai and made their way to other parts of the world. Some went some migrated to the United States, some went to Europe, some went to um, Australia and other places. Uh, so it, it is an important story. Uh, and there's a lot of testimonial. There are lots of memoirs. There are several great documentary films that have been made about this experience. And as you mentioned, there's a wonderful museum, which is built in the space of a synagogue that existed there and is still used as such. Um, I, I recently went to a friend's uh, daughter's uh, bat mitzvah there. Uh, so it's not just a museum for the memory of these Jewish refugees whose lives were saved in Shanghai, but it's also a living, breathing um, part of, of Jewish life and Jewish culture here in Shanghai today. I had no idea. I actually got a chance to visit a little over a year ago before lockdown and COVID hit again. And I thought it was just a full-time museum. But generally speaking, um, China has historically been, or at least Shanghai more accurately, has been a hub for cultures. And how has that diversity and interactions with different groups of people helped Shanghai develop into the city that it is today? Well, this is the um, 
you know, this, this is the maybe bright side of the colonial. We talked about, you know, there was, there's definitely a dark um, aura to colonialism um, and, and especially in that period, but there's also on the bright side, Shanghai was an international city, you know, in the late 19th and early 20th century, people from all over the world were living in Shanghai living in a metropolis that was Chinese and yet very modern, uh, very up-to-date with all the, you know, the cultural and technological developments of the rest of the world, uh, very connected to the rest of the world. It was a very sophisticated uh, society, um, Shanghai society in the 1920s and 30s. Um, of course, all of that was torn apart with great violence in the 19 late 1930s with the Japanese invasion in 1937, terrible battle for Shanghai in 1937. And then this protracted war um, and the occupation by Japan in the 1940s. Um, and then by the late forties, the most of the international people living in Shanghai had either left or were, on their way out, certainly after the revolution of 1949, they were no longer welcome in the city. Um, and so Shanghai had this legacy, this mixed legacy of being a colonial city, but also being this very international, sophisticated metropolis. Um, and I think that when China was entering into the reform era in the 1980s, there was this notion that, well, Shanghai was once this great international metropolis, maybe it can be again. And that really started to take off in the 1990s. And you saw, you know, Shanghai welcoming more and more foreigners. You had the, uh, so the APEC, uh, there was a major conference in 2000, I think, can't remember what the, the, the acronym, but of course, more importantly, the World Expo of of uh, 2010, which was this grand kind of uh, showcase of the city to millions of Chinese and millions of foreigners coming to China. Um, so I think, you know, Shanghai obviously made a lot of grand gestures to be an open international city, very welcoming to foreigners, uh, making, uh, trying to make life as comfortable as possible, allow foreigners to come in and be part of the city to, to set up restaurants and clubs and become entrepreneurs um, and be part of the life of the city. Uh, more so, I think, than any other city in mainland China. Um, not that this doesn't happen in other cities like Beijing and Guangzhou, but I think to the extent and then drawing upon that legacy. And one thing that foreigners love about Shanghai is that it does have this heritage of being a kind of westernized metropolis. So you have all these old buildings that were built in the early 20th century that are very attractive and alluring to foreigners and to Chinese um, that make it such a special metropolis in China. No other city in China has that concentration of, of old buildings that were, you know, uh, designed by great architects uh, with impeccable 
architecture, architectural features and really ultra modern. And um, so that's what makes Shanghai really a really special city. A lot of maybe it'll come up again. Yeah, well, as you said, China and Shanghai has had a lot, a lot of historical interactions with the West, whether in the past it was in a colonial sort of way or now where it's more expats, diplomatic trade, economics, etc. But how can China's historical interactions with the West help us understand their present day policies and diplomatic relations where U.S.-China relations are like on the headlines? It's probably yeah. the most important diplomatic ties between our two superpowers. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's uh, of absolute importance that we do understand the history of China's relationship with um, the rest of the world. Uh, and I, and, you know, I just want to mention that at DKU uh, where I teach we, one of the courses that all of our students must take as freshmen is a course called China in the World. And when I taught that course last year, um, the focus was on history. Uh, it's a team-taught course. So we had several historians teaching it. And we went through that, that large, large arc of history um, going back to the Qing Dynasty, the Manchus and their conquest of China the building of the Manchu Empire, um, and then, of course, the, the encounters with the West. Now, encounters with the West, meaning Europe, they go back to ancient times, but you know, I think uh, they become much more significant and, um, and important for China in um, the Qing Dynasty. And because that's when... Uh, that's when merchants from um, England, from, from the United States, from other countries were coming to China to, uh, to buy tea. Um, tea, was the, tea was the big commodity that they, that they wanted, that they needed. And, excuse me. And that led to the opium trade. So long story short, um, opium became the means, became the commodity of exchange with China. And that led to all sorts of uh, social and economic problems for China in the 19th century. And that culminated in the opium wars of the mid 19th century and that was when the whole treaty port system started. And you could say colonialism then had a foothold in, uh, uh, you know, British, American, et cetera, French colonialism had a foothold in China. Shanghai was the flagship city in that system. So understanding that history is extremely important to understanding China's relationship with the Western world today. Um, you have to understand how China conceives of this century of humiliation, starting with the Opium Wars. Um, and then, of course, culminating in the 20th century during World War II with the invasion by Japan, which was incredibly tragic and violent for China. 
So you need to understand all of that to, to understand China today. There's no question. I think any historian would say the same thing. Um, you may not need an, an in-depth, you don't need necessarily a PhD in history <laughs> to, to, to understand, but at least you know, read a book or two to understand that this all happened. Um, I can recommend some books, but uh, you know, most of all, Jonathan Spence's book, Search for Modern China, anybody who is, who is interested in China ought to have that book on their shelf. It's one of the best books written about modern China, um, even though it's a little dated now, but a uh, fantastic historian of, of uh, China, Jonathan Spence from Yale University. Um, so, so understanding this history is important. It's also important to understand that there's other dimensions to the story, um, because I think that a lot of China's problems in the 19th century were internal. So I think that there's a lot of emphasis put on the story of Western imperialism as being this kind of, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back and create, helped to create a weak China and so on. Um, but there were internal dynamics. Uh, you, you really have to look at the Qing Empire. You have to look at the, the massive expansion campaign of the Qing dynasty under the Qianlong Emperor. You have to look at the, the incredible levels of corruption in Chinese society. So you have to know who was He Shen and what he did at the end of the Qianlong reign. You have to understand the Taiping Rebellion of the mid-19th century, massive internal rebellion in China that left tens of millions of people dead. Um, and, and really destroyed a lot of southern China in its path. Um, so you need to know all of these things, both the internal and the external forces that were shaping modern China, in order to understand China today and China's relationship to the world. Yeah, countries seem to, over history, whenever they have internal problems, turn to a form of conflict, or I, as we talked about in a previous podcast, the creation of the other to maintain legitimacy and sort of placate the masses. Do you think this may be what is exacerbating the rift between Asia or China and the West? I don't think so. I, I think, honestly, I, I think that a, a lot of a lot of the exacerbation has been on the side of the of the West, of you know, especially America in recent years. Um, I think that the the narrative changed from, oh, look at China, they're developing, we're helping them, we're the big brother. That's you know, talk about it's kind of the American perspective. It's because I think Americans were we're a little bit patronizing towards China and towards other countries. Um, so, oh, look at the, you know, the healthy exchanges and, and, and we're helping China to develop. And of course, you know, DKU, where I work, a Duke University uh, partnership, you know, this is part of that equation. Uh, and I'm all for it, obviously, or I wouldn't have been doing this all these years. Uh, I think that's all great. But then somehow the narrative changed and America started blaming China for its woes. 
And I think there's also a lot of fundamental racism under underneath that because, you know, goes back to the 19th century, the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, there's there's definitely a lot of system systemic racism embedded in the way the United States has related to China um, over the past couple of centuries. Um, and so I'm talking about U.S. China here in particular. Um, I think there's also some growing fear. Oh, China is now very powerful. Um, it's now a rival, a strategic rival, possibly a threat. So they're going at it from that perspective as well. Um, but if you look at it, uh, you know, if you look at it objectively in terms of just sheer military power, the projection of military power in the world, America, the United States is still the dominant power has military bases all over the world. It gets involved actively in other countries and so forth. We're not seeing that yet with China. Um, China's issues are you know, mainly internal. And of course, there's other issues. Um, you know, Taiwan is an issue. It's a, certainly a huge, huge bone of contention between between the United States and China, which which China sees as more of an internal matter. So there are these different perspectives, clashes. I don't think it's a class of clash of civilizations because I think that China, in so many ways, Chinese civilization has really become a kind of form of Western civilization. I mean, here's my take on it. China a century ago really did have a separate civilization. It was, it was very, very different up until the early 20th century. And that civilization was systematically dismantled, not by Western powers, but by the Chinese themselves, by, by you know, under the, the ideology of Chinese leaders like Sun Yat-sen, like Mao Zedong, who wanted to forge a new China, but they were looking at Western models. Uh, they were looking at Western ideologies. Um, they were looking at Western economies, technologies, educational systems. And now, in so many ways, I feel like China resembles the United States. It's a city of, it's a, it's a country of massive highway systems. It has a much better train system than the U.S., but that's very recent. Unfortunately, the U.S. has never really put a lot of emphasis on its rail, on kind of modernizing its rail system. But China has, um, and it's a it's it's a country now where people want to, you know, they can't really own property per se, um, but they they want to invest in properties. It's a major source of investment in China real estate. They want to own cars. They want to go on long car trips, travel around the country on the, on the highway system or ride the rails. Um, so all these desires, you know, the, the technology, the social media, the fast food, the urban lifestyles, the shopping malls, the nightlife. I feel that any American could come to, 
urban China today and say, yeah, this is not too different from what, you know, it's just bigger. There's a lot more people, but, but, you know, yeah, going to a shopping mall in America, maybe they're a little more suburbanized. I mean, I think one of the big differences with, with America and China, the United States, I, when I say America, I mean, United yeah. States, and I apologize to other North Americans or South Americans, but you know, United States. Um, so I think one big difference though, and this is something I'm really interested in because it's part of my life too, is that America in the 20th century, see a lot of the changes that China's going through now, I think happened about a century ago in America, right? So there was the big, you know, big urbanization, the, the development of the highway system, uh, the role of the automobile in society. All that was delayed because of China's, you, you could say that, you know, it just took China a while because of revolutions, because of wars, because China was starting from a different civilization. But now China is kind of has been moving into that U.S. model. But one, one big difference is that the U.S. Um, really created this suburban model of life in the starting in the early 20th century, early mid 20th century, when it was the greatest economic power after World War II. Um, so suburbanization became this huge phenomenon. That's why people needed automobiles so that they could live in the suburbs, they could commute to the city or go there for fun, or they could go deeper into the countryside for fun. Um, but the automobile became kind of essential, partly because Americans became suburbanized and most Americans didn't live inside big cities. They lived kind of in the outskirts. Um, and in China, I still think that the gap between the city and the countryside is huge. Although it's, it's getting smaller, but it's still the idea of, like a, of a person in Shanghai going out and living out here in a place like Quinshan. Yes, it exists. Some people do for economic reasons, but it's not really a lifestyle that people intentionally pursue. And all of the conveniences of suburban life in America and all of the infrastructure are not really there in China yet. Certainly in, from what I, you know, from what I experienced between Shanghai and Kunshan, um, and I suspect this is also true. I, th I think there's just a much bigger drop-off between a city person and a country person in China. Yeah, and I think that I actually live in a position that's right between, if I go 10 minutes, I believe, south, I get to an area where there are a bunch of just massive, it's massive farmland. There are a bunch of farmhouses, yeah. et cetera. And 10 minutes north, I'm into the middle of Pudong in the middle of the big city. And it's just crazy. Like I can be in both worlds in the same day, but going back to something you said earlier, like, yeah, the U S I think I heard something this morning that was talking about how the U S military spending is more than the next 25 countries added together. But my main question being a global politics nerd is that, do you still think that, Huntington's clash of civilizations continues to be a valid theory now that the world is so globalized? I, I've always been uh, suspicious of that theory. 
And I just don't think it holds water. And again, goes back to what I was saying about China. I really don't think that China is a separate civilization. Okay, yes, China has its own language or languages. There are multiple languages in China. Um, but, you know, we have our national language, Mandarin. Um, and that's very different. And the character system is different. It comes from a different civilizational source. The English alphabet comes from, you know, the the Greeks and the Phoenicians and so on. It's kind of embedded in our Mediterranean culture, cultural heritage. China had its own source of civilization. So there's no question that these were, you know, obviously there was a lot of overlap. Okay, I teach, I teach ancient China, medieval China. You know, one of the fascinating things is all the overlaps, all of the cross-fertilization. So I'm not saying they were never entirely separate civilizations. No, there was always some kind of exchange, commerce, cultural transmissions. But, you know, when you look at how different the Chinese character system is to the Western, you know, the, the alphabet, I think that's kind of a symbolic way of, of sort of seeing how different these civilizations were, how different their sources are. Um, and so in that sense, you know, Chinese people still use the Chinese language. They still learn thousands of characters, which is hard to do. I know because I've done it and <laughs> I don't, I don't read Chinese nearly as well as I'd like to, or let alone write, but I do know a lot of the characters and, um, it's extremely challenging, I think, to learn all of them, to learn all of their historical sources and so on. Not that English spelling isn't challenging too, but, you know, so, you know, you could say from that point of view, it still is, you know, the Ch a lot of people, uh, you know, but a lot of Chinese people do speak English. A lot of the more educated people do now. Um, they use it for business. So English is still the international business language in China. Um, I, I can't imagine a world where Mandarin becomes the dominant global language. I just don't think it's possible. It's just not a language that is meant to be globalized. It's too difficult. <laughs> um, and English has a 500 year head start on Mandarin anyway. So, uh, so you know, that aside, I mean, I don't think that we're looking at a clash of civilizations here. I think, I think that a lot of the, you know, the so-called China dream, the, the visions of China for its own modernization and development, and, and the fundamental values and, and just uh, search for comfort and so on in China is not too different. It's kind of, it's also the American dream a house and a car, a good education for your children, um, stable jobs, a good source of income. Um, you know, these are all, these are all uh, dreams that we all share. I, th I think that we all have a lot more in common with each other. Um, and whatever it was fundamentally different about Chinese civilization is really rapidly disappearing or has disappeared. So that's kind of my take on it. Um, so I don't think that that's a real source of conflict. I think it's more a power shift 
where China is trying to assert itself at least as a regional power. I don't think that China wants global dominance. I don't think it sees itself as capable of achieving the kind of domination that the United States did after World War II. But I do think that China wants more regional power in, in this, the Asia-Pacific region. And that's the big source. I think that's the biggest source of tension because America has, is used to dominating the Pacific ever since World War II. That's our legacy. So that's really the heart of the, of the, of the issue. And then there's the question of um, all of these outlying, the countries that surround China, at least, you know, on, on the, on the Eastern side. So Korea and Japan, and then we have this kind of ambiguous status of Taiwan. That's also part of this legacy from, you know, going back to World War II, going back to the U.S. occupation of these places after World War II, right? When the U.S. became the number one enemy, right, during the Korean War in the early 1950s, U.S. was China's number one enemy. And we can't forget that. That was the, that was the low point of our relationship, right? When we were at war, um, on the Korean Peninsula. Terrible, terrible war. A war that's largely been forgotten or ignored, especially compared to Vietnam, uh, but also a very, very terrible war and one that China will never forget. That's for sure. Um, so, so all of these are, are issues. There are a lot of historical issues that have to do with the post-World War II um, power, uh, power structure in, in East Asia, in the Asia Pacific that is now being contested. No, I found that fascinating. And actually I want to go back to a point you just talked about, um, being, I love languages and something that my Spanish teacher at school says, always says actually that resonated is that Firstly, culture is a form of power and that languages evolve by getting simpler. And I think that speaking both English and Chinese, Chinese is just every character is distinct. So I, I think if we put two people learning English, learning Chinese, nine out of 10 are going to say Chinese is harder. But pivoting to this aspect on culture, a thing that a lot of your books, such as Shanghai's Dancing World, has touched on is music. How do you think art forms such as these can help bring communities together during hardships. Yeah, that's one thing that I've really spent a lot of time um, researching, participating in. Um, I'm a musician myself, not, not, a, not at a professional level, mind you. <laughs> I would hardly put myself you know, on the, in the category of the great musicians that we have in Shanghai who perform at clubs like Jay-Z, the best jazz club in China, um, or at the other live music venues. But, you know, I like to play guitar and sing and play, play piano and keyboards. Um, and so, so I love music. I love, I love uh, all sorts of music, classical, 
rock and roll, um, pop music, dance music, you name it. Um, I've, I know a lot of Chinese pop and rock music. I made a whole documentary about, you know, I filmed the Chinese rock scene. I have filmed the jazz scene and made a documentary about that in Shanghai. So that's something I spent a lot of time with. Um, obviously my, you know, my first book was about, um, the jazz age in China and, and it was also, it was not, it was fundamentally, it was about music, but it was also about dancing. So I think the other side of the coin is dancing. So I think music and dance have always been ways. Sorry, my, my dog is insisting that he come on my lap. This is Pepe. Say hello. This is our family dog. Pepe. All right. So um, was I saying? I think what's so amazing about music and dance is it's always been a form of transcending the limitations of language and culture and bringing people together. So I think music and dance have been with human beings ever since we were human beings. Our ability to sing, dance, play music, play instruments goes back tens of thousands of years. We, we have, we have musical instruments that we dug up in prehistoric sites that have been dated back 30 or 40,000 years, bone flutes and such. And you can imagine they were playing drums in those caves when they were doing the paintings and they were dancing. It's so obvious that this has been such a fundamental part of being human and it's universal. Every culture has it. Every culture has their styles of music and dance and they, and it, and it builds community at all levels. And so I think, I think that's the potential that music and dance have. And you see that throughout modern Chinese history as well. You saw it with the jazz age in Shanghai when Chinese people started dancing on the floor with the same floor with foreigners. Even if they couldn't speak to each other or share each other's language and culture, they could dance together. Um, and at the same time, in the folk culture of China, you know, during the revolution, Mao and the, and the revolutionaries were harnessing the folk culture and folk dances became a very important part of revolutionary culture. And you can still see that today with the Guangchangwu, right? You go to any public square in China, you see these old ladies, not so old, young, middle-aged ladies doing these dances, sometimes with fans or, you know, sometimes it's just they're moving there. They're all moving in unison. It's beautiful. It's healthy. And, and it's such a strong part of Chinese culture today. Um, so that's another way that people in a community come together. But I've always been interested in the more international, um, in the international forms of music and dance culture and how those, how those have influenced and been influenced by Chinese society. So I think that's what I've spent a good part of my career researching and writing about and making films about and so forth. Uh, are there a few notable, notable points that you'd like to share with our listeners? I think that's fascinating. Well, I, I think, um, I think music is a global phenomenon. So I think we, we too often 
kind of classify music in these very binary terms. Oh, that's Western music or that's Chinese music. Um, and I think what's happening is it's, it's a, as my colleague, Andrew Jones, who's probably our, one of our most brilliant theoreticians of modern popular music in China. He just came out with a, his latest book, Circuit Listening, which I reviewed. Um, and it's a wonderful book. It's all about these, the, you know, using the circuit as a metaphor, but also um, as a kind of symbol of the power of technology in shaping music and in bringing music to larger and larger audiences. Um, but music is, has always been a global phenomenon. It has always been shaped by global trends and developments. So any, any music that you, that you can identify as American has roots in Europe, it has roots in Africa, it has roots in the Caribbean, it has roots in Latin America, it has roots in Ireland, and so many places. So music is constantly being shaped by global flows, by migrations, by, um, by the experiences of refugees, of, um, of immigrants, of colonials, of sojourners, bringing music, sharing it, and then it gets localized, and then it gets reshaped, it gets sent out again. Um, so I think that we, we have to kind of change our model of what music it, and dance. Dance is the same, same thing for dance. But we have to change our mental model of what music and dance are and stop seeing it in binaries or in these genres that were created by the music industry for commercial purposes. So stop seeing music in genres, stop labeling, oh, that's reggae, oh, that's rap, oh, that's rock. That's, it's all music. Like Miles Davis said that, I, it's not jazz, man, this is music. I'm playing modern music, you know? So it's, we have to, I think, listen deeply and carefully to music. And we need to reshape our mental models of what it is. And as you said, music and dance is a great way to form community and community we've seen in Shanghai has been especially important and might be the silver lining of our lockdown where people, neighbors that we never talked to before come together to volunteer to help the community out. And Shanghai has been through a lot and lockdown uh, for those who don't know what that is, it's we were shut down in our houses for like 84 days um, between March and June. <laughs> and this is probably going to end up as another notable event in our city's history. So for our final question, are there any lessons that we can learn from surviving through past hardships that might help us better cope with this time? Um. Yeah, it's been fascinating. And I don't want to make light of the lockdown because I think that was a, a really tragic uh, occurrence for millions of people stuck in their homes for seemingly kind of endless period of time. I think the worst part about it was the uncertainty. Nobody knew when they would be released. And it just kept getting longer and longer. Um, I was not directly a part of it because I was here in Quinshan where we did have a lockdown, but it was a lot lighter lockdown and less time. Um, but my family was in Shanghai and uh, 
you know, they made it through. Um, every, everybody I know, my friends and, and family members and extended family there, they got through and they got through because they were able to form, like you said, the, the communities um, with their networks of friends and relatives, but also with other people, neighbors in their own communities where they could get the resources that they needed. Um, now, of course, you know, there was some help by the government uh, as, the, as it got more and more prolonged um, in um, getting basic resources to people. But, you know, this was a, this was a, uh, a very tragic event. Um, a lot of it, it, it has been devastating for a lot of people. A lot of people have, have left. Um, others have stayed on. So um, it, it's had different effects on different people. Um, it's, it's hard to compare it to historical events because, you know, Shanghai is a city that has gone through phases of terrible violence, war, revolution. So, you know, as we were talking about at the beginning of this podcast, the 1930s was a time of, of um, just unimaginable calamities, both in China and the world with streams of refugees pouring in and out of the city, um, an occupational army, the Japanese army, taking over the city with great violence and force. Um, and, you know, at that, at that time in Shanghai, you could, you could walk down the street and run and, and like walk over a dozen dead bodies because people had just gone out to die at night of disease, of malnutrition, or some other reason. Um, there were assassinations every day. Uh, so it's, it's hard for us to fathom what it was like to actually live in the city at that time. And that was one of the darkest periods in the history of Shanghai. I'm not even going to go into some of the other ones, because I, I think that definitely was kind of the the darkest part of Shanghai history that I'm familiar with. Um, so Shanghai has gone through a lot. It's gone through a lot of pain and, and um, it's always reemerged, right? And it's always, and, and I think that the history of Shanghai and of great world cities, because this is also the history of New York and Paris and Berlin and London and all the, all the great world cities, Tokyo, all the great world cities you can think of, they've gone through terrible periods of pain and, and horrible disasters. And they've always reemerged stronger. I think cities is, there's it's one thing just incredible about cities is that they, is that the great, the great world cities just keep growing, getting stronger and stronger. And I think, you know, that's, that's, what is, that's what will happen to Shanghai, um, barring some, you know, unimaginable calamities in the future. Um, but I, I think we probably don't want to talk about those right now. So let's stick to the past. Well, thank you, Dr. Field, for that message of hope. And I'm certainly hoping that the city that I've come to love comes back stronger. And thank you as well today for your talk on a brief history of Shanghai in a podcast that ironically doesn't discuss China that much, even though we're based here. And for me, if there was something that I took away, it's that 
history has had its great moments, its atrocities, but we should also be appreciating it as we learn from it. And in these times of hardships and conflicts that we're going through, we should realize that we have a lot more in common than we think. As you say, let's focus on those things that we share in, are similar in, rather than our differences. And it's like music. We all come from the same roots. So absolutely, that, my best wishes to those in Shanghai. And thank you again, Dr. Field. Please stay safe. Thank you, Nathan. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode of History for Two. Please share this podcast with your friends and tune in for other episodes. You can also find full video episodes on the website www.history42.com.